Welcome to the Liberty Block. I'm Alu Axelman. I'd like to do a video podcast recapping my impressions and analysis and a recap of the Ian Freeman trial and the unfortunate conviction. Before I do, I have to introduce today's sponsor. It's localsilvermint.com, thelocalsilvermint.com. It's Silver Dave's silver store. He sells silver, gold, all kinds of amazing products. A one-tenth ounce silver bit over here that you can see, hopefully, and also sells gold backs there and all sorts of products from one-tenth of an ounce all the way up to an ounce and even a 10-ounce brick. The best prices that I know of, and that's why I go there for pretty much all my silver. So check out the the localsilvermint.com. Let me just confirm if it's local silvermint or the local silvermint. Yeah, it's localsilvermint.com. And we'll put that up in the video and show notes. All right. So I have a lot of really interesting um perspectives and a lot of thoughts, tons about the trial. I attended on the last day I finally got there. It's in Concord, the federal court. And it was the last day, the 10th day of the trial, I believe, it's when both sides made closing statements. And one of the things I learned was that the prosecution gets a closing statement first, and then the defense gets a closing statement, and then the prosecution gets a rebuttal. So they get a second closing statement. And what's very important about that is the last thing that the jury hears before entering deliberations to decide whether a person's guilty or not is from the prosecution. Also, while we're on the topic, I think there are a few reasons, a few different ways that the, the deck is stacked, stacked against the defendant, which is interesting because in general, in criminal law, we learn that in this great, amazing country, land of the free and home of the, um, you know, innocent being defended and all that and, and the defendants the accused having having amazing rights and yeah you know they have to prove beyond reasonable doubt and and the defense has all these rights the fourth amendment fifth amendment sixth amendment and all these great rights that protects them so so that the system errs on the side of the defense as opposed to prosecution we all know the famous quote attributed to benjamin franklin and many others saying it's better that 50 guilty men should escape than one innocent person should be condemned so um, we, we know how it should be, but in practice, what I learned sitting in the courtroom there is, in a lot of ways, the prosecution actually has the upper hand. Number one, as I mentioned in my book, Prison Guilty, many times, um, the prosecution, who is the lawyer for the government, and the judge, who is the um, jurist for the government, both work for the government, obviously. In this case, they both work for the federal government. It was a bunch of federal prosecutors and the federal judge. So they all work for the same system. So there's an inherent conflict of interest, in my opinion. But also they had six prosecutors. I assume they were all lawyers. Um, the official FBI press release they put out, and, and we'll get into that a little bit, and I'll share the, the link for that. They mentioned, I think, three of the um, AUSAs, the assistant U.S. attorneys, and but I, there were six there, so I don't know if they had assistants or paralegals or whatever, but there were there were six people there, I believe, and the defense only had one. It was Mark Sisti, Ian's defense lawyer, and I think he had one assistant with him. So it was really just a lawyer and one assistant, whereas the prosecution had six. So it was six to two or six to one. So that's another. So there's there was that. There was the getting the last word, getting you know a rebuttal. So effectively two closing statements, and the jury hearing them last. But also apparently, and this I haven't confirmed, but 
what some people told me, um, either Penguin or, or Bonnie or someone else who was there um, during the voir dire, during jury selection, apparently I thought each side can um, dismiss uh, like three or a certain number of the potential jurors from the pool if if they show some kind of bias, they think they won't be uh, fair or you know, beneficial to them. But apparently, from what I heard, the prosecution can get rid of as many potential jurors as they want, whereas the defense can only get rid of three, I believe. Um, so this this I have to confirm, but that's that's what they seemed to indicate happened. And anyone who seemed like they might be friendly towards crypto or liberty or anything like that, or Ian Freeman, the prosecution dismissed from the jury, whereas anyone who seemed pro-government and anti-freedom could not be dismissed because the defense only had three uh, dismissals, essentially. So that's another way that I believe that, that from the beginning was kind of stacked against the defense. But still, throughout the trial, and I just heard the closing statements, but I was I was reading on freaking.com from Penguin, Chris Wade's incredible write-ups. He wrote after, he, I think he went every single day and he wrote incredible write-ups. I haven't read them all, to be honest, because it's too much. I mean, it's like tremendously long articles, longer than I think maybe any of mine. Um, you know, like thousands of words. He pretty much was writing with pencil and paper and transcribing it later on to the website, freekeen.com. So I'll try to link to some of those. But if you go to freekeen.com, you'll see the latest articles. It's like all the most recent articles are on their website homepage. What I would love to do is get is get Penguin and or Ian on podcast at some point soon, and they can tell us a lot more. But obviously, the closing statements, they recapped, the prosecution recapped a lot of their biggest arguments. So I got to hear a lot of that. Um, and I was following Free Talk Live and, and, and chatting with them in between um, throughout the trial. So I, I got a decent idea of the basics that the prosecution was saying to try to convince the jury to convict Ian. But I, I don't know all the details as much as they do. And just to recap, he was initially charged with, I believe, 25 different federal charges that was added up to a total of around 420 years in prison. They dropped 17 of those charges, so eight remained of the 25, I believe. And he was facing eight charges here, and he was convicted of all of them. What the charges were, were operating an unlicensed money transmission business, and we'll explain what that means. And you can look it up in the law, this definition for it. Money laundering, conspiracy to money launder, and two counts of one of them. I think two counts of conspiracy to money launder, possibly. Um, and then four counts of tax evasion for the last four years, I believe, of not paying federal income taxes. So the prosecution made the case for all eight of them, and it was all concurrent. So during their entire trial, they were calling witnesses, and they were making the case that he was guilty for all of those eight uh, crimes they were accusing him of. So throughout the entire trial, I think for all of those different crimes, I believe the prosecution had a very weak case at various points, one or two cases points in, in their very long closing statement, um, because the, the first of his two closing statements, because he gets to the first from the prosecutor was an hour and 15 minutes. It was very, very long. Um, and others there who had a little more experience said it was quite long, because um, this is my first closing statement that I've heard in a, a criminal trial, I think. So, um, and he went over a lot of the things he had previously said. Obviously, it's a summary, and a lot of it seemed very, very weak. At one or two points, it, he kind of made it seem like Ian was not the most perfect person in the world. Um, and may have potentially violated some law, but but at best, what he was insinuating was uh, circumstantial evidence or uh, essentially requesting that the jury speculate. For instance, 
the crime crimes in criminal court here in the United States and, and the Western civilized world are supposed to be proven beyond a reasonable doubt, meaning the the jury is only supposed to come back with a conviction, a verdict of guilt, if they find that beyond beyond any doubt, beyond a reasonable doubt, meaning they're they're pretty certain that the person committed that act, meaning there has to be some, some proof, pretty concrete proof, right? Not he was doing something bad and some other person somewhere in the world got hurt. Now, from what I heard, and, and I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure one of a few of the witnesses that the feds flew out, obviously on federal tax paradigms, so they forced you and me to pay for it. They flew out people from like all over the United States, people who, who had been scammed by crypto. I don't think these people were scammed or, or, or uh, were scammed by people who then instructed them to go to Ian and trade dollars for crypto. They would send him like a wire or or mail him whatever money. Um, they would send him money and he would give them crypto and then they would send it to their friend. I don't even think it was like that. I think they just were generally scammed by somebody. Um, and because they were, they were, you know, elderly and they were victims of scams and they told their sob stories, the jury, uh, felt bad for them. But even if they, even if they were, cause they might've been, even if they were victims of not Ian's, but victims of a person who essentially, uh, you know, catfished them and made them fall in love with the, the typical elderly senior citizen romance scam where someone, a person who, again, this happens a lot in, in Africa and Nigeria, apparently is big with crypto and also big with scams. And someone again in a, a poor quality of life area will convince like an 85 year old widow that she's you know loves this person and then he'll say i really need money for this and that for rent for whatever and just please send me uh bitcoin or any kind of crypto because it's 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 uh you know somewhat anonymous if you don't know how to look up a blockchain the different transactions um so it's pseudonymous and um it could be quick and um relatively low cost although bitcoin generally has very high fees um as not really tracked by the typical government banks and stuff so they would say you know just just use your money go to a someone to exchange it go to an exchange or something and get crypto and send me crypto please and they would do it a lot of people if you fall for this game i'm sorry but um i think it's caveat emptor in latin uh buyer beware meaning you should know better if you fall for the scam i'm sorry it, it's unfortunate that someone is so naive to fall for a scam but the middleman the person who exchanged your crypto for you crypto for gold so if you have silver and I have gold and I trade silver and gold with you, why should I be on the hook for something that you do stupid with what I gave you? Does that make sense? If you, if I give you something, if you buy something, you give me money and I give you an item and you do something stupid with it. If I sell you this one tenth ounce bit of silver from Silver Dave and you uh, put it up your ass because I sold it to you, should I be on the hook for that? Again, and the society we currently have, I might be responsible for that. So th that's kind of what happened here. Now, that is uh, money transmission and money laundering. Money laundering is essentially a federal crime in which a person is guilty if he uh, knowingly, I believe, is in there. And and obviously he did not, Ian did not knowingly um, take the product of, of you know dollars that was gained from a crime, so illegally obtained dollars, and exchange them for crypto. He didn't. In fact, he proved, and they didn't dispute, the prosecution did not dispute during the case, that a person who turned out to be a federal informant, because the feds, by the way, the FBI has been uh, targeting and attacking Free State Project, and especially Ian Freeman for years. They raided his house uh, like a decade ago. A long time ago, they raided his his house where his, his big uh, radio and podcast studio is. 
because he and Mark Ed, the two main co-hosts on the radio and podcast, um, Free Talk Live, and they were the, the founders and the main hosts. They um, were really almost like antagonizing the FBI. It was warranted, but they were antagonizing them by mentioning repeatedly on the air in front of, you know, like 180 radio stations around the union and on their podcast and videos and everything that the FBI is kind of the biggest um, uh, perpetuator of, you know, child porn because of how much they shared it. Not producer. I don't think they produced it, but they were, they were sharing it around and essentially one of the biggest uh, sharers of it of child porn because they were trying to catch people. And again, we saw this with Fast and Furious with guns. So they, they give tons of guns or drugs or in this case, child porn to, uh, you know, spread it out there. Then they'll say, oh, we'll follow it. And we'll see who, uh, you know, downloads it, watches it, sells it, whatever. And then it can catch the people. Of course, that's the, the plan on paper, but it doesn't work out that well in practice. But but one, so possibly the, the biggest uh, sharers, biggest um, uh, producers and and promoters of child porn was, was the FBI. And, and Ian and Mark mentioned this on the show. And eventually the FBI came to their door and raided their studio. Um, and I think, you know, messed up some of their equipment with a, a violent raid and and uh, charged them with child porn because they mentioned it and said, no, I bet you're the pervert. And then they dropped the charges. I believe no one was convicted. But then a few years later, again, the FBI still had a vendetta against him, maybe because of that. Phil Cristiano's big FBI agent who's in the New Hampshire area. That's his territory, I guess, because uh, they're a criminal gang. So, you know, they have various people assigned to various territories like most gangs. So the FBI um, had this guy, Phil Cristiano, trying to find, uh, attack the Free State Project. People, obviously, Rich Paul back in the day, now known as nobody, they tried to get him to wear a wire and and agree to do violence against government officials. Obviously, you know, he refused. Um, they tried, they keep trying to get these people and stuff. And anyway, one of them, not Phil Cristiano, I believe a different FBI agent or informant, when mentioned that he sells heroin and got money from heroin sales, which be almost illegal. And then he said, hey, can I give you some dollars? And Ian, can you give me some Bitcoin in exchange? And Ian said, no, I can't do that. That's a crime. So again, that the only one time that it was very clear, someone mentioned that there was illegally gotten money, dollars, and he wanted to trade it for crypto. Ian refused to do it. But then the guy went to a crypto ATM that Ian happened to own because he owns a lot of crypto ATMs. And he did successfully put in dollars and get crypto. Which again, he could have done to any ATM in the world, but he chose to do it. He took $20,000 of taxpayer money and he went to Ian's crypto machine, which it was a relatively private machine. It doesn't require KYC, which is know your customer, which is some federal laws. Um, but again, we're currently, as the statutes, the laws passed by the federal government and state governments here in New Hampshire, they do not require that. So some elect to have some you know, uh, questions to uh, get to know the customer, the KYC on their crypto ATMs. It seems like Ian did not uh, use that on his ATMs because he supports privacy and doesn't even care to know who, who is is uh, putting in dollars and getting crypto from those machines that he owns, which is his right. And it's not a crime. But the federal government argued, the prosecutors, because this person, um, again, he's, not, he's um, an IRS or FBI agent. He's a federal agent. But because he was essentially pretending, playing the role of a heroin dealer. So, so let's just say he, he was a, a heroin seller. Um, he was able to use this this essentially pretend dirty money and launder it, and that's where money laundering comes from. Clean it, the dirty money. Clean it by putting it in the crypto ATM. And again, he could have done it to any, any ATM, but he did it to, to Ian just to do it, so they could eventually go to a grand jury, get an indictment, and then eventually uh, put him on trial for this and convict him. So, so that's that's what happened. Um, he he did it, and he said, "Look, money laundering." So, but obviously, not knowing it was not knowingly because Ian 
he actually, the one time he asked Ian personally, he said no. Then he went to a machine. And again, currently, as law as the law stands, currently, or a year ago, when this when this all happened over the last few years, because um, the raid was it was a year ago in March, a year and a half ago, in 2021. That's when they raided the house. And, and I'll try to put in some video or articles here linking to the raid. It was one of the more violent, ridiculous raid raids by, uh, I think, like dozens of members of SWAT teams with M16s and shields and grenades. They um, took like axes and smashed all of the cameras on the outside of the house, which is sickening. They also pulled the um, plugs and stuff from the show because they have a, a, a show. They have a, an amazing studio. I went there once, a great studio in their house, the Free Talk Live studio, which is a you know tremendous AV setup. And they, they smashed they smashed that, tore that up and, and disabled a lot of it. They were off the air for some time. So that is you know possibly a First Amendment violation, by the way. So that's worth looking into too. One day in our dreams when we could sue for that. And Mark, I've mentioned that. I think it's a pretty good point where there might be a First Amendment violation for taking them off the air and depriving them and all their callers because they are the ultimate call-in show. Free talk live. They let anyone call and talk about anything they want. It's depriving them and their callers of interacting with each other and exercising their free speech and expression. So there could be a First Amendment violation there. Maybe I'll put that in my next book about First Amendment. So anyway, what else do we have here? He was charged with tax evasion. Um, Ian Freeman is the minister of the Shire Free Church, and it is a real church. They've done um, tons of charity over the years, and thousands or maybe more than thousands in charity. They actually helped when a mosque needed a, a local mosque for Muslims in Keene area needed a place. I think they they let them use one of their properties as the mosque for some time, and I think they donated to. And they had someone, they, one of the few witnesses the defense brought was this person who said, yes, that religion, that church was very real to me because they actually helped my mosque stay alive. So like they've done they've done a lot of other charity with peace, um, all the outreach of the service and the community service and, and the spreading peace. So so yes, they, they are more real than, than many churches out there. But of course, the prosecution said he was using it as a church to you know get around tax laws and all that. Um, Overall, the, the IRS agent, from what I heard from her testimony, the big IRS expert, said that she is not sure that he, he would owe any money. Um, they said they allegedly, the feds claimed they sent him like one email, but of course, we all know they're scams. And, and the IRS, the federal government says this all the time. If it's in the email, it's probably phishing. It's very likely a scam. Don't click it. And Ian obviously is smart enough to not click on the email from the IRS saying you owe us money or something, or, or you know there might be an issue with your taxes you didn't file. Um, they always what do the feds always say? We'll send you a letter in the mail. He never got a letter in the mail. Um, yeah, I don't I don't think he got a letter. So um overall the, the tax charge for the tax evasion seemed pretty weak. But again, he was convicted of all those four as well. Um let me see what else I have here. Yeah, we discussed money laundering, discussed money transmission. Pretty much if you do money transmission, and I don't know the exact statute, you have to have a license. Um I think what he was saying was was this did not fit a money transmitting business. And then they also got him for conspiracy, which apparently just means plan, which means that he planned with one other person. And and what the prosecution argued was that a, a conspiracy, which is a plan, doesn't have to be spoken. It could be hinted. Like they kept saying um, hint, uh, wink and a nod to, to others saying we're all going to money transmit. Uh, yes, and Ian did work with, with plenty of his other friends in there to um, trade crypto and dollars back and forth with people and to facilitate that to get crypto into the hands of people. And again, one of the big things that I wanted to mention is that they said he made uh, over a million dollars. I don't know if that's gross or net of him, his sales over the last uh, few years. So they were investigating him, I guess, looking at those four years because of the you know taxes were for four years, those uh, four tax evasion charges. So over four years, he might have made a million dollars, um, even if that's a net profit. Uh, so what? It doesn't matter. People buy and sell assets all the time. 
Um, obviously, there are tax implications, and and if it's a religious institution or a nonprofit, that doesn't apply anyway. But but saying that he made a lot of money, I don't know if he did or not. But here's here's the thing: the whole argument relied on on the foundation that he was a big, evil, manipulative, lying criminal mastermind. That's what the prosecution said. I think verbatim was he's a, a lying, manipulating mastermind or something like that, or a kingpin. And and you know he wanted millions, and he took advantage of people, and he took advantage of old people. And what the prosecution said was was old people don't know crypto. Old people are low tech and they're stupid. He also attacked black people, um, essentially showing a picture of a black person and saying, "Does this look look like a CEO of a company to you?" It was a shirtless black person in the picture that Ian had because he actually got more information than required by law. So for all the stuff about KYC, the know your customer requirements um, that are are on some crypto exchanges or something. Um, you don't have to for just buying and selling crypto someone sends you money and you send them crypto you don't have to have their uh license or picture or name or anything but he actually did for his own records and to confirm that it was on scam he would ask the person if they were buying if they were trading dollars for a large amount of crypto he would ask them to send a picture of themselves with the current date written like on a, a paper or something a picture a selfie with them i think their name and their date and i think there was something else I think it was saying I am buying this amount of crypto for for um, this amount of dollars. So um, he actually had all his pictures saved on his computer. So they they raided the house, smashed his stuff, took pretty much everything. I think all of the uh, you know computers, electronics, the cold storage wallets of crypto, a lot of gold, a lot of silver, a lot of crypto, a lot of cash. I believe. Um, I assume they took the guns that his roommate did. He doesn't have guns, but his roommate did. And I assume they took all those guns too. So the asset forfeiture, they did a lot and, and they are going to keep a lot of that gold and silver. They have a lot of gold backs. He, had, he was very involved in, in the gold back and uh, he was a big investor in them and silver as well. So they another thing that they implied the prosecution was that um, having a lot of money is essentially a crime. And, and again, we've talked about asset forfeiture. I wrote about it a lot in the book. And others have written about it more, I'm sure. Asset forfeiture is essentially the premise, uh, at least when used for cash, of when a cop pulls you over or a cop sees you or you know happens to smash into your house with a tank and a battering ram, um, you know, and then they find themselves in the living room and they see a lot of cash. They say, Why do you have that cash there? No one has that much cash, it must be dirty. I'm gonna take it, and then um I'll investigate it. So it's it's really sick before conviction, they take your money. So again, presumed guilty. Um, but back to what I was getting to was one of the pictures that he had was a uh, person who was a, a young black gentleman who was shirtless in the picture, again, not a crime to be shirtless. And uh, he had a picture saying, I am, you know, so-and-so uh, John Doe and, and I'm buying this crypto. And then the prosecution put that picture up in all the monitors as the exhibit. And he said, does that look like a CEO to you? And I was like, shocked. I looked at Bonnie because this was by the closing uh, statement. And I'm like, did he just say like, or she said to me, like, or Nikki, one of them said to me, like, did he just say, like, young black men can't be CEOs? Because that, that's pretty darn racist. So he was uh, being pretty bigoted towards elderly people and black people. So that was the prosecution. So you people, that's the federal prosecutor that you're paying for with federal taxpayer dollars. So, um, yeah, th throughout, I mean, it was a really bad job, I think, in general by the prosecution. And, and as far as that person, pretty much what was happening and, and what they the, the story they were painting the prosecution was that that ian was making it easy or facilitating or you know the mastermind behind these scammers who and it does happen it happens with, with crypto and with it happens with gift cards i heard about it a few months ago or a year ago it happens with gift cards a lot because they're not really traceable they're things you could send in the mail 
um, or maybe given the code of the gift card. I don't know how it works. The amount of codes on them. And you can send a fair amount of money to people pretty untraceable. So you go to Walmart, buy a gift card, and then you can send that gift card in the mail or, or virtually to a person who, again, has done this romance scam where they make someone usually elderly or maybe a naive young person fall in love. And then, you know, you get catfished and you see a picture of a pretty person from across the world and they say, send me money. I love you. I, I need this. I'm starving. And you send them money via, you know, gift card or cash or crypto. Crypto is one of the tools you can use. And they, they can wire the money too, which I'm sure happens with wires. Um, now, what was essentially happening was these people, so um, these scammers would convince these people and these people, unbeknownst to Ian, would go to Ian and they could have gone to any other exchange or anything. They went to Ian and they said, I'm going to give you, you know, whatever thousands of dollars and I want, you know, whatever, half a Bitcoin. And then they would get it. And then they, you know, they would send the Bitcoin or they would give the Bitcoin address because it's all the Bitcoin addresses are like long addresses of a long code. It's, it's like, you know, 17 letters. So they would say, this is the address to send it to, please. And he would say, okay. Um, and he would send it to them. So that's kind of, that's kind of how it worked. Um, now, and his fee, they think they said uh, 10% or 14%, I believe. And and some of the exchanges were, had more of a 2% fee for, for exchanging dollars for crypto. It's just the fee for the currency exchange. And, and what he was saying was, you're clearly so greedy. The prosecution said, oh, well, you're greedy and you charge so much because you were anonymous, more anonymous than the exchanges. And and he said, I think, you know, the defense didn't really argue. He said, yes, I have these rates and it's obviously the market rate. Otherwise, I wouldn't have any business. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have any trans, transactions. And yes, I, I am, you know, more private than the uh, KYC exchanges online that, that a person could go to. So that's, you know, people wanted to pay the premium for the privacy, but uh it's not that much higher as far as local bitcoins. I don't think it was it was extraordinarily high those exchange rates um, because he offered more privacy. You know, he he said very often, and I know him. He's a very pro privacy, peace, and liberty person, and he very often says it's not my business what you do with your crypto or any of your money. So it's not his business, and I agree with that. Um, but the, the feds had a hard time understanding that, and I guess the, the jury agreed. Another big thing was contempt of bank. Essentially, what, what he was saying, I think, with the money transmission, transmission crime, um, operating an unlicensed money transmission business, was contempt of bank. Where, where I think he kind of pissed off the banks by not telling the banks, uh, I guess, where he got the money, because um, he got a fair amount of money and he, I guess deposited the bank. And I think the banks uh, assumed that he got the money not from crypto, and and he might have mentioned uh, coin like. Some of the, the cryptocurrencies are called coins, um, Bitcoin, other coins, altcoins, Dashcoin, all that stuff, Litecoin. So um, he might have mentioned coin um, or even said uh, rare coins, which, which again, even if he said um, these people are buying a rare coin, even if you would could say that's a lie, still lying to a bank is, is not a crime. Now, what's very interesting and one of the most important things about this trial is that we often say people who support liberty and peace and, and logic and common sense – is if there's no victim, there's no crime. If there's no human victim, I don't care if it's bad for society or bad for morals. If there's no human victim, and that's why I always add that word, human. If there's no human victim who's hurt, you can demonstrate you have harmed by punching them in the face and they have a bruise, or you've broken a bone, or you've taken something from them, and it is possible to demonstrate that they now have less of that item, you stole their money or something like that. If there's no human victim, you didn't hurt them with their property, it is not a crime. In this case, there was no victim. I'm pretty sure even those scam victims were victims of other people, not of Ian. They would just brought them to show an example of what a crypto scam looks like, I believe, to the jury. So they flew them in from all over, tons of them. And they also put brought in experts, and they were investigating for four years. So so taxpayers like you and me 
probably paid like, um, I don't know, millions of dollars throughout the last four years to investigate Ian. So again, even though I didn't want to, I was forced to pay. And, you know, I mentioned some of the stuff that we're forced to pay for in this latest book, Taxation Stuff. So the, the banks were upset. And essentially, my understanding was that when, when in the pretrial hearings, the prosecution was essentially telling the judge that the victims were the banks. And I think the judge or someone asked, or maybe the defense asked, okay, so, so he uh, committed fraud against the banks because one of the charges that were, were dropped, there were some, some wire fraud charges and wire fraud is a very broad charge. I wrote about a little bit in the article and then presumed guilty that seemingly says, essentially it's like money laundering. It's very broad. And anytime there's any fraud or um, omission or any lie of omission or anything like that, or misrepresentation via any electronic means. So, you know, phone, email, computer, whatever, blah, 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 so on and so forth, then it's, it's wire fraud. And I think, I guess those were among the charges that dropped, but essentially that that wire fraud charge with the banks was because he, he may have misrepresented some of the you know money or where he got the money from to the banks and um, what he was saying was it sounds like contempt of bank like contempt of court contempt the bank because bank is essentially banks the big ones are essentially part of the government now so anyway when the defense asked i believe i think this was during the plea deals because there were the crypto six there were six arrested initially uh one i think was all dismissed against them and four took charges and ian was the one who brought it all the way to trial with the jury, um, which, by the way, allows him to appeal. So he will appeal, and whereas the ones who took plea deals cannot appeal. So they're kind of locked into that. And what's interesting is they don't know the sentence. Sentencing, I think, for everyone is in, is in April. So it's a while, for better or for worse, until they know their sentence. So they took a plea deal or convicted. Either way, it's guilty, and the judge can sentence them to nothing or years in prison in, January, in uh, April. So anyway, when the defense, I believe, asked... Um, if the banks were uh, defrauded by Ian, then you know they were harmed. Okay, so so what does he owe them? Restitution, because we all know it's common sense. In in any criminal case, if a person hurts someone, the most important thing forget you know prison or punishing him. The most important uh, form of punishment or method or reason for punishing should be restitution to make that person whole. If someone steals a hundred bucks from me, do I care if a judge? puts them in jail and rips them, or do I get my money back? The most important thing, yeah, I want to punish, but the most important thing is the judge compelling them to give my money back to me that they stole. Restitution. That's that's the, the most important thing and the foundation of, of criminal justice for all humanity. So anyway, I think the prosecution said, oh no, the banks didn't lose any money. They don't require any restitution. No thanks. They, they didn't lose any money. They, they can't request restitution. So it was not really fraud. Again, they were saying he lied, which, you know, they could say it's not nice of him to close his bank account, which I believe they did. A few banks closed his banks, closed his accounts. But to uh, say it's a crime of, of fraud, and they dropped that charge. But I think they, they kept mentioning that throughout the trial. So let me see if I have anything else. Uh, the prosecution, so he was convicted by a jury after a few hours of deliberation. Um, again, a lot of interesting questions about what the jury understood and exactly how the judge um, instructed them because the judge explained the laws to them. And he gave them, I think, written explanations of this is the law. And if you find that all these elements are present, then say he's guilty, otherwise not guilty. Anyway, they convicted him on all accounts. He's uh, facing the prosecutions requesting 20 years in prison, I believe. The sentencing hearing is scheduled for Ian on April 14th, possibly for Aria Demezzo as well. He does plan to appeal. Uh, one of the few things that I think 
could be a, a plan for us to help him with that sentencing hearing is I think in general in sentencing hearings, a judge will accept various forms of evidence or testimony from people from both sides, you know, so like victims, but also defense supporters. Um, and that could help him uh, mitigate or or uh, exacerbate the elevate the amount of punishment. So if the victim's families are all saying that they suffered immensely and the defense has no support, he might go towards the higher side of the um, sentencing guidelines and, and vice versa. And here there are like no human victims, I don't think. So there probably won't be those, although the prosecution is going to bring in, you know, they might bring in their uh, witnesses again, their experts from IRS and FBI and stuff. But anyway, what I think we could do is is send a lot of letters, like write letters and give them to Ian's lawyer or send them to the judge or something and just mention that Ian is, you know, not evil criminal mastermind. Um, and one of the things I wanted to mention was if he was really greedy and making, you know, millions or billions and, and uh, breaking the backs of people and, and um walking over their backs to make millions and, and using them as stepping stones um he lives like an average person if you look at his car and his house and his clothes and everything else uh, his his resources his uh, properties is like pretty much less than the average person of new hampshire i think his car is 15 years old i think he said he drives a 2006 car um like a regular like a honda or toyota or something um like a, a car like 10 years older than mine and and his house is like very um, average house in Kenya. I think it's rather old, actually. Um, so again, he's not really living like the lavish billionaire. So that just goes to the show. Again, he he is the minister of of his uh, religious institution, and it, it can sound interesting to you, but he acts more like a minister than than I would say ninety nine percent of ministers I've met, as far as how uh, peaceful and calm and loving and forgiving he is, and, and that's his real personality, and he tells it like it is. So he's always very very open i think he's way too open and and uh uh honest with everyone he's just open 100 and he's like always that calm and peaceful mm -hmm. so he really does act like a minister so uh but again like the the, the modest minister living way uh below his means what he actually has because yeah yeah he has um wealth uh gold silver whatever crypto but he he does not live like it like he is fine to live pretty much as poor as possible making sure he you know can feed himself every day and like that's all and um a car that gets around and the rest he spends on resource on just uh spreading the message of peace hope love service liberty and, and he's a tremendous activist so if we all send letters um i guess explaining to the judge that he's not the kind of person who would ever scam anyone and and you know when he hears about scams or when he hears about any misfortune anyone has, he actually gets upset. Like he does not like anyone having misfortune. When people mention even that the most evil criminal gang sociopaths like uh, the DC politicians have misfortune, he does not share in the joy that a lot of others co-hosts or other cohorts like, you know, even me that might mention. Um, so anyway, let's get into the, the FBI's press release. They said towards the end of it, this matter was investigated by the Federal Bureau of Investigation, Internal Revenue Service, Criminal Investigations, United States Postal Inspection Service, National Cryptocurrency Enforcement Team, Department of Justice, Tax Division, um, and who else? Uh, prosecuted by Assistant U.S. Attorneys Georgiana McDonald, John Kennedy, and Seth Afram. And yeah, and as far as the raid, there were like 10, 15, 20 federal agencies involved there and the the local city police of Keene secured the perimeter so they helped them and they were just tremendous it was unbelievable they threw grenades they woke them up at 5 a.m by grenade there was no official call out of come out with your hands up they never did that actually they they essentially lied because there's it's all in video they lied on the stand when, when 
the uh, FBI agent in charge, I believe, said they did a call out. They did not. They pulled up and they threw grenades um, or flashbangs or whatever. And they started um, entering the house, smashing down cameras as they went and um, smashed through one of the windows of the battering ram. And then they flooded the house with their F-16s. And oh, it was unbelievable. The, the video of it was played in court. I'm glad the judge allowed that. It was really, really sickening, the video of, of that raid. And it was like uh, March. It was really cold. It was like freezing. And uh, like 20, 30 degrees or something. And they made all of the occupants of the house, including Ian's now wife, Bonnie, like come out pretty much naked. They're all like pretty much naked or in their pajamas. It was 5 a.m. They're sleeping. And they came out in the pajamas or a gown or, or shirtless or somewhere naked. And they made them come outside and then put on their shoes that were filled with glass because they had smashed the windows. So really, really sickening raid. So I, I think that's pretty much all of the major points I wanted to hit. There's so much about this trial. I mean, there could be articles written on there are, but there could be, I think, a book. There could probably be a book written just about the Crypto 6. Actually, there is a documentary. The uh, the Ballad of the Crypto 6, and I think it's balladofthecrypto6.com, and they are uh, uh, an independent film crew. They came in, they interviewed me once or twice, and they interviewed, obviously, Ian, the Crypto 6. They went to Keene a few times. They interviewed a lot of people. They went, I think, they couldn't go into the courthouse because you can't have anything in there besides a pencil and paper. And I think they interviewed people outside the courthouse, a few of them. So there will be a documentary. Yeah, it's balladofthecrypto6.com. They raised enough money, and it's going to happen, I believe. So the documentary is coming out, hopefully, in a few months. And then it'll be there to hope to play it play it at Porkfest, the screening of the documentary. So that'll be awesome. And check out freekeen.com and freetalklive.com and they should have a lot of updates about the, the trial. A lot a lot of articles, like I said, that Penguin wrote are on freekeen.com. It's on like the front page, all the latest articles. So I know I couldn't do it justice, but I wrote an article about the raid right when it happened in March of last year. And it was, it was crazy and I'm still pissed off about it. Um, so I wanted to update, I finally updated the article. I should write a whole new article, but I am swamped with the books in this school and everything else. And the Axel baby coming in a few weeks. Um, the next book, The Fair Unity, also coming in like two, three, four weeks. I don't know if it'll be that first and the baby first. And just a ton going on, obviously. So please check out libertyblock.com. Check out our podcast. If you want to come and argue with us, a lot of you want to argue with me or our smarter and wiser co-hosts. We have a lot of brilliant co-hosts. Please come on the show. We'll send you a Zoom link or give you a phone number to call in. We would love to chat with you, debate with you, especially if, if you disagree with us, because we love that. Um, and we have really, really good, intense, but respectful debate. So it's called the Conservatarian Exchange on the Liberty Block. And it's uh, filmed live, essentially, every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Eastern. And it goes for an hour, hour and a half. And come on that show. But check out libertyblock.com. Email me at alu at libertyblock.com. Find me on Facebook or Twitter at aluaxelman. If you have any uh, questions or comments or anything, we do accept articles, submissions, op-eds, stuff like that. And make sure you follow all the most recent articles, podcasts, and books. I will try to get Penguin or Ian or someone on the podcast to interview them about the trait case. There's so much fascinating case. Very interesting. I learned a lot. It was awesome. Thank you for sticking with me for the long podcast. Have a great night. Remember, make taxation theft again. And remember to check out localsilvermint.com. And have a wonderful night and happy new year.